Hello, welcome back to the American Writers uh, 100 Pages at a Time podcast. I am still working my way through this uh, anthology of Civil War uh, writings. It's been slow. I've been reading a lot of other things lately. I've been uh, digging a lot into Stephen King, um, reading, trying to read some history stuff too, uh, not related to this podcast, so that's also slowing me down. So I'm even slower than usual with this, but I uh, hope you'll forgive me for that. Um, anyways, um, the, the, the documents in this set, uh, it's basically uh, October through December of 1862, and this will really be looking at the aftermath of the of emancipation, or the Emancipation Proclamation, if you will, um, all the way culminating with Lincoln's uh, uh, address to, to Congress in, at the end of 1862. So we have one more episode on this uh, second volume, you know, uh, really centering on the Battle of Fredericksburg, but this does sort of bring an end to that, that f the first part of the Civil War in which it was... Um, you know, before it really became a revolution before. It, and that, that's really something that uh, we need to talk about. Like in this episode is the the voices of people who were hesitant to see the war become something greater. Um, and those who were like, you know, pushed to that stage, I guess, by uh, circumstances. And, and where Lincoln falls, I'm not quite sure. I guess I, I think Lincoln did want emancipation from early on, but, you know, he was more practical about it. But there are other people who, who became more accepting of this change, and I think that's going to be true of many of the soldiers uh, who fought in the war. Uh, although we don't get too many voices from them in this particular set of readings, I'll keep my eyes open for that. Um, but then we have uh, the people who had always wanted this to be what the war was about, right? And, and they're, and, 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 you know, they're, I guess, they were always on board, I guess, the Civil War being a revolution. But those voices are, are sort of here in the background too. But I don't think we got Doug. No, we do got one Douglas, yeah. Um, one Douglas document here. So mostly it's going to be different uh, voices. Uh, then we have, uh, in terms of military matters, uh, you know, there's not that much going on. There are some significant battles to mention, though. Um, really centering in the West, uh, you know, McClellan gets fired in the East and, you know, one reason was he didn't, he didn't really move to pursue Lee after the Battle of Antietam and Lincoln was kind of encouraging him to do this. He's like, we have an opportunity to maybe seize Richmond, um, but at least, or make some progress in defeating the Confederate army. And he didn't do that. So that's one reason he was fired, but it's also because McClellan was openly publicly opposed to to emancipation and the Emancipation Proclamation. That's probably a big part of it as well. So there's not much in the East to talk about. We'll get to the Battle of Fredericksburg in the next episode to some degree. Uh, really, where exciting things are happening in our West, where um, Braxton Bragg, a Confederate general, invades Kentucky. This is like the equivalent, I guess, of the Antietam campaign, the Maryland campaign in the, in the East. Uh, well, the Antietam in the east, and then the west, it's this invasion of Kentucky by Bragg. Both were turned back. Yeah, here was the Battle of Perryville. We also have a Battle of Corinth to just mention. These were Union victories. So there's kind of Union victories across the board in this period. Um, so this is really a turning point in the war in, in many, many ways. Um, 
So anyways, let's let's jump into the documents uh, we, we do have here. Uh, the first is a uh, is a uh, Fritz Fitz John Porter to uh, a guy named Marble. Uh, and this is this is from a newspaper, the New York Wind. Um, sorry, the New York World, the New York World. I can't even my own handwriting. Um, getting worse and worse with this. Um, so this was a uh, Porter was like a McClellan uh, supporter and, and spokesperson and, and stuff. Although he was another general, and he's writing to this guy Manton Marble, uh, who's the editor of the New York World. This was an anti-Lincoln newspaper. Um, and even in this war, if there was broad support for the war effort, at least to a certain degree, there were voices, really the opposition to Lincoln was on this, especially they come out now when it's, you know, the opposition to emancipation becomes a political point that they can use to attack, attack Lincoln. Um, and this is a newspaper that was, was, was opposed to Lincoln. And, uh, so what he writes about here, basically, it's broadly about the, the hostility to abolition. Uh, he writes, this is Porter writing, I've been expecting daily to hear that the world has been upset and eclipsed and no longer permitted to reflect the light of the sun and lighten the darkened masses of abolitionists, secessionists, and other enemies of our country, end quote. It's really interesting he uses the word secessionist to refer to essentially abolitionists. And of course... You know, back, I think, in the antebellum period, there were like secessionist voices among the abolitionist movement. Those are not going to be as significant once the government backs up um, emancipation, of course. But this idea that there's this, that these are the radicals that are really threatening to undo our country. It's, I mean, the language of secessionists there is, is interesting. But anyways... Um, he does a couple things in this newspaper. He's trying to get his voice to the media, of course, uh, the McClellan's opinions to the media. He's, he's basically defending the Maryland campaign, which is already coming under attack for not doing enough to defeat Lee's army. But mostly this document is presenting this hostility to emancipation. Uh, quote, uh, basically saying this is going to prolong the war. Uh, the proclamation was ridiculed in the army, caused disgust, discontent, and expressions of disloyalty to the views of the administration, and amounting, I have heard, to insubordination. And for this reason, all such bulletins tend only to prolong the war by rousing the bitter feelings of the South and causing unity of action among them, while the verse reverse with us. Those who have to fight the battles of the country are tired of the war and wish to see it ended, and honorably, by the restoration of the Union, not merely the suppression of the rebellion, um, for, for there's why difference to the presidents would fain to make us think his world working for a sus sus suppression of the rebellion, that they are one and the same. So he, he's really saying like the Lincoln's connecting these two things rather than just focusing on the end of the rebellion, which they d in a deluded way think it can be one. Uh, you know, the reality is slavery is dead at this point regardless of the Emancipation Proclamation, just because of, of what it has done to slavery, right? Uh, on the ground, right? And the people fleeing, you know, military victory would achieve the end of slavery one way or another. Um, but the Emancipation Proclamation kind of puts that in stone to a certain degree. But uh, that's being missed on some of these voices because they're trying to politically attack Lincoln, I think. Um, he says the suppression, the support of radical voices is undermining the goal of ending the rebellion. Um, and 
he kind of does say also what what I was sort of just saying is that victory will end slavery anyways and therefore we don't need to politicize it we don't need to put it in stone um, he says in this way i believe the opinion of the people will be softened the poor enlightened and a new reign established before summer returns peace reign all over the country but on our part and part of those in the north it must be done the moneyed men the capitalists must declare their policy and demands that they must be a conservative political party this is all politics stuff um but somewhere say, he says yeah he says a better way to end slavery is not to embolden the south with this proclamation but rather to just win the war so i guess that kind of sums up this document it's a pretty interesting one uh both in how we see mcclellan trying to affect the media through this this uh lackey porter but the kind of the political alignment that's going to take place in the in the 64 election is kind of laid out here all right so next we have a uh, Braxton Bragg's, uh, I guess, proclamation to the people of the Northwest. And I think really he really means Kentucky, but also maybe a little more broad Northwest. He has some, I, I, I guess he had to write something because he's justifying invading Kentucky. There's still this belief in the South that these border states might shift to a Confederate position that windows more or less closed. But the hope is that this invasion of Kentucky will bring them on their side. Um, but he writes this interesting proclamation. It's an open letter, I guess, to the people, you know, justifying this. And he says a couple things. One is he's saying this is like self-defense. This war is about self-defense. And that's the, been the common line throughout is that the North is the aggressor here. The goal being peace, uh, you know, things you might expect. But where I think this document gets interesting is he, he tries to make an argument for common economic interests. He's saying it's really the Northeast that's sort of the Republican stronghold. I think he's kind of, I mean, didn't the Republican Party start in the Midwest a little bit? Like in places like Wisconsin and that, and those were some of the first states to vote Republican, like back in 56, the 56 election. But nonetheless, there's this belief that it's like, it's the Northeast that's, commonly oppressing economically the south and the west and therefore there's more in common between the west and the south being kind of agrarian countries even though they have a different labor system there's this idea of we're both agrarian um and he says the mississippi's joining the south and the northwest to kind of the mississippi valley area joins these other regions to face this threat from the east um, so he's trying to divide up the north essentially so obviously this is a field effort kind of ridiculous but it is um you know i don't know if it's just politics or if there's a real belief here among bragg that these are true positions but anyway it's interesting effort and it's one way of when we think about the regions of the united states and where they're aligned and and when we think about like later history and like the populist movement how there was sort of a populist alliance between southern farmers obviously that's it's not hear Bragg speaking for the planter class. So it's a totally different phenomenon. But there is there is going to be this kind of rural urban division in the second half of the 19th century into the 20th century, which I think is Bragg is, is kind of feeling a little bit, even if he's the wrong person to maybe speak for it. So anyways, anyways this is part of the justification for this invasion of, of Kentucky. And I, go, I think the plan is kind of going alongside 
the Maryland invasion as a way of kind of maybe pushing politically political changes right in in the north that might end up with a government more favorable to to the south um, so next we have Emerson's response to emancipation um, where he basically says this is what makes the war worth it he actually I think the one quote he says here essentially is like I don't know if it's a direct quote I wrote it down here last time pays for all at least that's what he says it's kind of what Douglas is going to say too is that yeah it's taken Lincoln it's taken the Republicans a long time to get to this point but we're here now, and that's that's good. It's a pretty nice uh, little essay he wrote here. Um, I might not say too much about it, um, though, in detail. I, I'm thinking I'm going to do a series on Emerson one of these days, and it should come up then. You know, but we see the frustration with Lincoln's moderation up to this point, but also uh, hope that this is going to bring justice to the land. The force of the act is that it commits the country to this justice, that it compels the innumerable officers, civil, military, naval of the Republic to range themselves on this line of equity. It draws the fashion to this side. It's not a measure that admits of being taken back. Done, it cannot be undone by a new administration, for slavery overpowers the disgust of the moral sentiment only through immemorial usage, end quote. So basically, this proclamation itself does end slavery. Um, Again, I, you know, I, th I think it is sort of ending on its own through the actions of enslaved men and women, but that's not to discredit the significance of this document that, I mean, I think he's right here. It's not something that could be taken back. Anyone who said, anyone who thought that somehow war, peace could have come without the abolition of slavery or that the war could have ended without the end of slavery is, would have just been wrong. Um, more so after the Emancipation Proclamation than before. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice essay. I, I, I enjoyed reading it. I actually was thinking, because I couldn't find an audio version of this, I was thinking maybe someone should read it. I was thinking maybe I would do that and throw it up on YouTube. But um, maybe someday. Maybe alongside this next document, you do both. Uh, and that's Douglas's response, uh, which is in the Douglas Monthly, his newspaper, his newsletter. I guess it's more of a journal, right? It's not every day, so you can call it a newspaper. But it's his journal. Um, and... Yeah, you can imagine what Douglas thought about this. He said it's too slow, but welcome. It's it's kind of very similar argument to the one Emerson made, but from the point of view of someone who, who was at one point a slave and um, was a fugitive slave for a while, had to, you know, eventually invented a buying his freedom uh, after the fact to secure his uh, safety after the, with the, you know, the fugitive slave laws and things. But there's a whole debate about that. Um any good sections here? The whole thing's pretty good. Um, quote, opinions will widely differ as to the practical effects of this measure upon the war. All that class at the North who have not lost their affection for slavery will regard the measure as the very worst that could be devised and is likely to lead to endless mischief. All their plans for the future have been projected with a view to a reconstruction of the American government upon the basis of compromise between slaveholding and non-slaveholding states. The thought of a country unified in sentiment, objects, and ideas has not entered into their political calculations. And hence, this newly declared policy of the government, which contemplates one glorious homogenous people doing away at a blow with the whole class of compromisers and corruptors, will meet with stern opposition. End quote. In which, again, there's truth to this. This is a very, uh, I think, as in almost everything, Douglas was right about this. He 
said that this is going to be the next political debate and it's not going to necessarily unify the country on this it's going to be there's going to be a, a more fighting about it but still no one's denying the significance of putting the u.s government behind the end of slavery but that's what's going to make it in a in somewhat something that's somewhat a democracy to uh, make it a, a political fight um you know how will that actually be implemented uh how will and then he another interesting thing here is what douglas leaves open is how this document will actually bring about the end of slavery you know what will he, he's not quite sure how that will happen he, he's, he's confident it will but how what's the method which i think is a foreshadowing of the debates about reconstruction that uh follow up the war i don't have the volume on reconstruction there's a whole another kind of fifth volume to this series which is the voices of reconstruction which would speak to that issue as well um you know just what is freedom going to mean um, but even more in the short in the, in the short term just how actually is, is freedom going to be achieved because you know the emancipation Proclamation doesn't necessarily on its own free any slaves it's going to have to be backed up by the power of the military and the power in law and congress you know and eventually constitutional reforms all right there's that so those those are two good documents they kind of do go together which is why i was thinking for a time of just recording the two sort of back to back all right next we have uh ooh, the debate in congress the Confederate Congress on retaliation against the Emancipation Proclamation. This is really dark stuff, to be honest. Uh, they, they, they're debating passing certain laws, and, and I think they do pass certain laws. Um, but this is just the, the debate in Congress. Um, basically, there's two things they, they, they come to, two conclusions, two laws that they pass. One is on the treatment of black soldiers, especially runaway slaves, basically treating them as fugitive slaves not as soldiers of the other, other side. And of course, that'll be eventually Confederate policy, which will be to if, if the Union recruits black soldiers and they're captured in battle, they will be, if they're slaves, they'll be treated as slaves and put into slavery, returned to their masters. So this is trying to do a couple things. I, it's trying to shore up the legal foundations for slavery in the Confederacy. It's trying to to make it more risky for black men to pick up the rifle um of course you know hundreds of thousands did despite this uh this danger um so that's one part of it the other is officers leading such soldiers would be seen as inciting rebellion which is a capital crime so this basically would allow the execution of officers who who lead black soldiers um so not, uh, you know, not unexpected, I suppose, but, but some pretty nasty uh, laws being passed here. Even like persons charged this way will be tried in military courts. So not even civilian courts would hear these, these, these cases. So um, that's it. So this is an interesting, this I didn't know. I, I, I knew about the treatment of black soldiers, I suppose. I didn't know about the debates in Congress, the Confederate Congress about it, but um one thing i've learned reading these confederate voices it's like they're not it, you know when lost causers tried to suppress the issue of slavery as, as a fundamental issue of the civil war 
you know, they're not reading the sources of the people they're they're supposedly advocating for because these documents are not at all shy about the, the the fact that the war was about slavery. All right, next we have uh, Times of London. Uh, now, generally, the British public was for emancipation, and the general interpretation I've read, and it comes across in some of these documents, is that emancipation basically made it more less possible for England for the UK, I should say, to support uh, the Confederacy, even though there were some people saying maybe we should, right? You know, maybe we need to broker a peace and maybe recognize the Confederacy or whatever. But emancipation limited the possibility of that because the British public was so anti-slavery. Um, but there are anti-emancipation voices uh, in, in the UK, and one of these is the Times of London. And and they just come out against the Emancipation Proclamation. But they, they can't say a couple things here. One, they say basically Lincoln is now inciting slave rebellions. So this is sort of how the South saw it. So they're kind of parodying Southern views on this, saying this is just going to make the conflict worse because it's going to encourage enslaved men and women to overthrow their masters and murder them and run away and disrupt the economy of the South even more and be lawless. Um, and that's not what Lincoln is doing. Lincoln is saying these people are free, so they wouldn't be slave rebels. They would be free people <laughs> exerting their right to freedom, right, against criminals. But um, it's such a brilliant, it was such a brilliant document. You understand Lincoln waiting for the right time to do it, but it's it was so effective at like everything it wanted to do, I think. Um, and... The other thing the Times of London says about this is this is desperation. This is Lincoln's desperation. It's a last resort for for Lincoln, who's nearly defeated. And we've seen the military history of 1962 was not until the end here pretty promising. It was like defeat after defeat, especially in the East. And we saw Lincoln's frustration and his anxiety and his feelings that maybe we'll lose the war or they're going to have to go all in to the end. But, you know, the result is not guaranteed um and then and i guess this fits into the interpretation that the emancipation proclamation comes out of military necessity uh, and i think that's part of it it does make sure the south won't be recognized it does allow lincoln to recruit black soldiers it does put pressure on the slave system itself it does give southerners less of a reason to fight you know saying there will be no peace i mean there will be no peace with slave with slavery surviving somehow but there's some truth to that, perhaps. But at the same time, it is an aggressive document. It's a document that's that's put forth after a victory. It's a document that's supposed to. It's it's bold. It, it's not one of. It doesn't feel like a desperate text. But there's reasons for thinking. You know, there's truth to the to the to the to the matter to the fact that there, there's truth to the idea that Lincoln was. You know pretty depressed in, the, in in much of 62 over the fate of, of the union so i don't know i hope that's clear where, where, where how i see that but anyways that's the times of london i didn't realize there was uh, such vocal voices uh, anti-lincoln voices in in london but you know you're always going to have two sides that's how the media works right all right so next we have a, a document uh, a letter from mcclellan to lincoln this is kind of more documenting the growing rift between these two people 
pretty big by now. Uh, but this one is directly to the question of, of the Emancipation Proclamation. And he's, it's kind of a threat. It, it is a political threat. Uh, where he's saying, like, we've been talking, the army's been talking. He, he kind of trying to speak for the army, which I don't think is, is just, but he's trying to say, I have the army on my side, and they're not supporting the emancipation, right? Um, now, the 64 election shows that they did, um, by and large, but there were some voices who maybe didn't support it, but by and large... In a democratic sense, it seems the, the army did support emancipation, at least came around to it. But he's here trying to argue, look, I have the troops and they don't support this. And, you know, and this might be a threat to you. You kind of see his political ambitions uh, way out here. We're going to get back to that a little bit later on. Of course, he does run for president on the democratic ticket in 60 in 64 and loses. But that wasn't a sure thing. At least it wasn't seen as a sure thing. Uh, that he would lose. Um, so we're going to come back to that issue a little bit. Um, so now we have a few battles to talk about, I guess. A few more memoirs. First, Oscar L. Jackson from a 1922 uh, memoir uh, called The Colonel's Diary. Um, again, there's so many of these memoirs that came after the war. I think that's a good thing for historians that all these memoirs existed, but... Uh, you know, they, we seem to be awash in them, uh, many to pick from and many to read. And, and many of them came into like these collections of, you know, like battles and leaders of the Civil War, these kinds of collections that put together all these memoirs and things. This is uh, just another in that long list of them. This is talking about the Battle of Corneth, which was a battle in Mississippi, in the Mississippi Valley. It was a major Union victory uh, that kind of set the stage for the Vicksburg campaign which would pick up in the next next spring. Um, we have a Confederate voice on that as well, dated October 4th. This is a more firsthand direct account, which meaning it's a journal. It's not something written after the fact, but he was captured. And so I, we've actually seen one of these before about uh, the points of view of people who were, were captured and you know had time then to write these journals and, and jot down their feelings about the battle that they fought. I think these, what's good about these sources are they, they're, they're usually written pretty soon after, after the fight. They show a lot of the fog of war and just the, the chaos of the battle and the trauma of it, the, the violence, the buckets of blood. All that stuff is, is seen here. And, the, and then what it feels to lose. It's, I think it's uh, you know, an experience both sides faced. It's something common in the Civil War, right? Both armies. I mean, how many, I don't think that many soldiers were in units that won every battle, right? They were, if they were in the army, if they were in the war for a long period of time, they experienced victories and defeats. They were captured, traded, came back into the army. And, and this guy whose name's Charles Lobsman, Lobberzon, did that as well. Uh, so after this, he'd later be swapped and, and was captured in a later battle. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, I think it's an experience that's shared along with that of death. And, and maybe some feeling of fighting for like the revolution in a way, whether uh, you know this focus on independence and the struggle against a greater power for freedom or whatever, or this idea of we're defending the legacy of the revolution. Um, that may be. There's a lot of common experiences, and I think that makes maybe the you know it's it makes 
one aspect of looking at war from the soldier's perspective, I think, kind of fascinating. Um, so anyways, that's that point of view. Um, what else do we have? Oh, then we have a, a J. Montgomery Wright uh, writing about the Battle of Perryville. This is a more rather square account. It's a staff officer in Buell's army. So it was Buell versus Bragg. Bragg was the... The force that invaded Kentucky, we had like 15,000 men. Buell approached with like 50,000 men. It, it was, in that sense, kind of a more one-sided battle, but it was a decisive Union victory that led to Bragg withdrawing from from Kentucky. It's kind of like the, the antinum of the, of the West, in that sense. Um, but not much to say about this document, I suppose. It's more of a cut-and-dry account from... A staff officer's point of view. Um, anything? Oh, this was interesting. This little quote was interesting, though. Um, Waiting for news to carry back, I saw and heard some of the unhappy occurrences of Perryville. I saw young foreman with the remnant of his company of the 15th Kentucky Regiment withdraw to make way for the reinforcements, and as they silently passed me, they seemed to stagger and reel like men who had been beating against the great storm. Foreman had the colors in his hands, and he and several of his little group of men had their hands upon their chests and their lips apart as though they had difficulty in breathing. They f filed into a field, and without thought of shell or shot, they laid down on the ground, apparently in a state of exhaustion. I joined a mounted group about a young officer and heard Rums and Wink, one of Jackson's volunteer aides, telling that the general's death and the scattering of the raw division he commanded. I remember how I had gone up to Shiloh with Terrell's battery in the same steamer, and how, as the first streak of daylight came, Terrell, sitting on the deck near me, had recited a line about the beauty of the dawn, and had wondered how the day would close upon us all. End quote. Um, what struck me about this was just the, 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 the deep emotion of, that people felt and how the impact on large number of men events on the battlefield whether it's the death of a general or a beautiful moment even how how emotional these battles could be for the soldiers another night you know even though his his point of view is more from the staff officer's tent he gets these windows into the more profound experience of the soldiers fighting for their life um, for our confederate confederate point of view on the battle of Perryville, we have sam watkins i think this is our first uh Slice from his 82 memoir, which is pretty famous, uh, maybe thanks to that Kim's Burns documentary. He was one of the voices that showed up a lot, but he, he fought for much of the war. I think, you know, very much from the beginning to the end for the Confederacy. Uh, and it's a nice, it's a nicely written memoir. I think that's one reason it's popular. It's quite, uh, quite a compelling um, approach. Literary, there's literally talent in, in this, this account. And like some class consciousness here. That's the other thing I liked about this document was that there was a, or maybe the main thing I got out of this particular passage is this, there was the Southern army was so, so aristocratic, right? The planter class were the officer corps. The generals were all from the planter class for the large part. It wasn't as, as upwardly mobile as the Union army was. And he speaks to this. He says, um, you know, there are generals who sucked and should have been cleaning latrines. And there was privates who could have been generals and and he seems frustrated about that and, and that's kind of a, a an interesting part of this you know because he was a poor white i don't think he was a slaveholder um but he you know he 
understood the class dimension of the war, which I think was a big part of both armies, but maybe especially in the South because it was such an aristocratic. They, they were fighting for this aristocratic privilege, the right to own slaves. Um, now, this next one we get is Lincoln to McClellan. So Mc, I guess Lincoln had gone up to Sharpsville after the Battle of Antietam and talked to McClellan directly saying, why don't you move? Now's our chance to move. Lee's defeated. He's retreating. We can take advantage of this. We have the troops. We have Burnside has his army, you know, in Virginia. You know, together we can maybe put the hurt on the Confederates. And he doesn't move, right? So he is, uh, he, he, he writes this letter later on, which is kind of like his last effort to criticize him for his overcautiousness and say, you got to move. Of, of course, this is going to be a big part of why McClellan's eventually fired. We don't see that document directly. Um, but, but, um, but I think there's other issues. There's political issues involved in that as well. Um, but this, this document is maybe Lincoln's final, put it on paper, uh, is, is his last attempt to get him to move. And he, it's not just that he's kind of sitting on the ground for firing McClellan. I think he actually does think there's an opportunity here to move on Richmond. Uh, maybe a little ambitious, but but I think Lincoln generally thought putting pressure on them is better than not. And that's going to explain why he liked Grant so much. And, 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 the, and the despite the heavy casualties of the Overland campaign, this Lincoln and Grant together thought constantly put pressure on them. We may lose more men, but they don't have the men to afford. They don't have the time. They don't have the land to spare if we keep pushing forward. Um, so that's that. So uh, this leads us to the last handful of, of documents here. Um, next, we have Palmerston to Lord Russell. So this is another internal British uh, document. The, we saw these people write to each other before about maybe we should recognize the Confederacy, that kind of stuff. And, and here they're kind of saying, well, maybe we can't anymore. So basically saying the window's closed on this. Uh, you know, there's still hope here for peace and maybe negotiating some kind of peace, but um, but you know, maybe hoping for armistice. He's, he creates some possibility that there might be an armistice, but saying maybe recognition is is not going to be part of that anymore, largely due to the to the to emancipation but also seen as like you know but he's also saying there's been less hope for arm for an armistice or a peace because of emancipation so it's going to 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 entrench both sides of this um next we have charles sumner writing to john bright in october of 1862 i think most of these documents are 186 october 1862 but here sumner is saying this basically saying the war has been changed into a revolution, which is a theme we're going to come back to with Lincoln's annual message. Um, and where do we have it here? He says, uh, of course, we have before us the whole reconstruction of Southern society. I've seen it so from the beginning, but I have hope that our people will rise to the grandeur of the occasion. The colonization delusion is from Montgomery Blair, postmaster general, who has made a convert of the president, end quote. So there's a couple of things there. One is Sumner always believing this is what the war was about and his happiness that it's finally gotten there, but also his frustration with this colonization uh, stuff. Now, yeah, that's coming from Blair. It's coming from other voices too, racist voices in the North. 
which was pretty common. So I still not convinced Lincoln believed in colonization that much. I, I think he probably saw it as a, you know, politically as a political position to take to make emancipation more palatable to those racist voices in the North. But Sumner certainly seems to believe that Lincoln has, has, has come around to colonization, which might suggest there was per private conversations that, that led Sumner to believe that. So maybe Lincoln was talking it up a little too much for Sumner's opinion. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe Lincoln for a while was playing more seriously with the idea of colonization. But part of me doesn't really believe that it was practical or that was realistic. Um, but we'll see. He actually talks about a constitutional amendment on colonization, as we'll see in a bit. Um, so then we finally do, we do get uh, uh, Francis Preston Blair to his son, Montgomery Blair, who was the, the postmaster general that was just referenced. But this is all about McClellan and McClellan's fate. And McClellan's already been fired by this point. This is November 7th. And... And yeah, that much to say about it, I guess. But I guess just uh, just a realization that 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 their ally McClellan is done for. He thinks that maybe Lincoln should have kept him on until for a little bit longer, holding out hope. But you know, there's also issues here about the succession. He says maybe Frank. I think the other son should have become become the general in in to replace him, but it doesn't happen. Um, who else gets the job? Of course, uh, Ambrose Burnside gets the job, and that's what the next document's about. It's George Meade to uh, Margaret Meade, his wife. Um, and he, two things here. One is I didn't realize this before: is like how Burnside didn't want the job, and how he actually like kind of freaked out. He had kind of a nervous breakdown about this. And he talks about tears. He talks about Burnside in tears over this news that he was going to have to leave the army. He just didn't seem to want the job at all. That might help foreshadow the failure at Fredericksburg. Um, Burnside would not have the job for long, obviously. Um, but more interestingly, uh, Meade says, I think McClellan's going to have a political career. He actually says it's going to be like Taylor after, um, after the Mexican War. And... This is going to make McClellan a bit of a martyr and the firing of him, and that may push him into the White House. So, again, you know, the whole shift from like the military conflict between McClellan and Lincoln to a political conflict leading ultimately into an election. It's kind of epic in, in a way. But Meade saw it coming. Meade was a smart guy, he was a, a, a great commander. Um, one wins the biggest battle in in american history right so so next we have uh orville browning's diary he was talking about meeting with the president this is again this is more about mcclellan's being fired and this is so this is in the diary but Browning had met lincoln that day and he talks about the meeting with the president and it's basically like the the whole list of reasons why mcclellan was eventually fired uh talking about the, the the politics and the military reasons for it. So again, not too much to say about it. It's enough, you know, McClellan's career as commander of the army is over. But his political career is just beginning, as we'll see in future uh, documents, I'm sure. 
But now we get to the big document. The largest document in this set is Lincoln's annual message. It's, it's a long one. And obviously there's a lot uh, for Lincoln to report to Congress about. Um, but what to say? I'm going to break this down into a, maybe five things I think are, are rather significant and should be looked at a little in a little more detail. A lot of this is like diplomatic stuff and budgeting and those kinds of boring things. But um, maybe not boring to everyone, but boring to me. Uh, he doesn't talk too much about like the day-to-day -day military affairs. He kind of keeps that as his purview as commander in chief. But what he does, he kind of opens it up talking about this question of, are we, are we entering forth into a revolution? And he writes this, the civil war, which is so radically changed for the moment, the occupations and habits of the American people has necessarily disturbed the social condition and affected very deeply the prosperity of the nations, which, which we have carried on commerce that has been steadily increasing throughout the period of a half century. It has at the same time excited political ambitions and apprehensions which have produced a profound agitation throughout the civilized world. In this usual agitation, we have forborne from taking part in any controversy between foreign states." End quote. We have attempted no propagation or acknowledged no revolution, but we have left to every nation the exclusive conduct and management of its own affairs, end quote. I mean, that's, the context of this is straightforward enough. He's like, we got enough on our table. We're not going to deal with foreign affairs too much. We're not going to get involved in all the really interesting stuff going on around the world, right? Whether it's like German unification or stuff in Italy or the, the Taiping Rebellion in China. All this stuff is happening at the same time, right? Or in the same period. Revolutionary changes across the world. But he's saying we're not really going to get involved in that. But more so, he's acknowledging that there's a revolution at home. That this war is not just a war anymore. There's something much more profound. So that's the first thing I want to talk about. Um, and he does kind of roll back on that and, and, and contextualize emancipation in a way that's he's kind of saying we're, you know, he, he, he wants to not go all the way in. He's not rah-rah. Maybe he will by the end of get, by the Battle of Gettysburg, by the Gettysburg Address anyways. But he's, a, you know, he's acknowledging that things are changing. Um, another thing he talks about here is, is uh, emigration. And he, well, uh, you know, he, he mentions this in the constitutional proposal later on, but maybe Sumner's right. Maybe Lincoln is talking this up a little bit too much. I, I don't know. Um, applications have been made to me by many free Americans of African descent to favor their immigration, saying this is something proposed by black people. Um, and that's something I'm pushing. Talks about it as a if, as, as an issue of philanthropy, of um you know, where to send them to. He, he talks about sending them to Spanish America. Um, so, I don't maybe he is being serious about this. I don't know. I don't know. I still, I still, I still think a lot of it is the politics. I don't mind. You know, that Lincoln was so deeply attuned to the necessity of shoring up political support to, make the, to, to have success in the war. They didn't want to make any mistakes. All right. Another thing I want to highlight here is uh, the Indian resistance. We already saw how some Indian groups were siding with the Confederacy. And Lincoln here is pretty harsh about this. He, and of course, the biggest public or the biggest mass execution in American history happens under Lincoln's presidency. And it was of Indians, right? And he says the Indians are being insubordinate. Their other country, their treaty, they have, their other countries with treaties with the United States, calling them insubordinate is it's the wrong word, but that's what Lincoln uses here. 
because the U.S. is an empire and was at the time. But he talks about attacks by Indians among on the frontier and all that. And this is kind of set in the context maybe for the... To, to wonder, from the Indian point of view, the war never ends, right? They're involved in the Civil War. And then after the Civil War, they become subjects of imperialist conquest in the West, right? A series of wars systematically taking all of their land over the course of the 50 years after the war. Talks about building a Pacific Railroad, the Transcontinental Railroad, which of course is another active empire. So there's a lot of imperial context to this document. Then we have three constitutional proposals, constitutional amendments he proposes, that look very different from the three Reconstruction Amendments that eventually do get passed. Of course, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. Um, the first amendment he proposes here is compensated and emancipation, putting that in the Constitution, saying uh, every state where slavery exists, which, of course, doesn't include the South. Those states don't have slavery under the Emancipation Proclamation. He says... Uh, they should be offered up. We should have a law or constitutional amendment that allows for emancip uh, compensated emancipation in those places. Second is people who become free by the war. You know, an army comes in, people run away, you know, the contraband groups, whatever, contraband camps, that they should be made free. The way it's worded, quote, all slaves who have enjoyed actual freedom by the chances of the war or at any time before the end of the rebellion shall be forever free. But all such owners who have not been disloyal shall be compensated. That's the amendment. And the third is con giving Congress the power to appropriate money to colonize people with their consent to places um, at any place or places without the United States. So the interesting thing here is any place or places without the United States. So you're saying within or without the United States. So there's this would have been interesting if it had been passed if former slaves could have applied to Congress for money to settle in the West or the territories, which of course is not what the people who supported colonization wanted. They wanted the West for, for white people, right? But uh, obviously these weren't passed, but, but they do show Lincoln's thinking at the time. Um, and then the final thing, this was even more interesting. I don't know if I talked about this stuff when I did the Lincoln series, but he... He talks about the country being made interracial. Um, quote, But it is dreaded that the freed people shall swarm forth and cover the whole land. Are they not already in the land? Will liberation make them any more numerous? Equally distributed among the whites of the country, there would be about one color to seven whites. Could the one in any way greatly disturb the seven? There are many communities now having more than one free color to seven whites, and this without any apparent con consciousness of evil from it. So this is a contrast to the colonization argument. He's saying, okay, I might support colonization to some degree, but we're already an interracial country. And if emancipation just distributes black people across the country more broadly, that is not going to lead to a race war. Uh, I think this is acknowledging an interracial future for America or an interracial present, but a, a more so an interracial future, more broadly distributed across the country. And to some degree, that is also prof prophetic because in Reconstruction, black people did move around. Uh, during the Great Migration, they moved to these northern cities. Uh, you had the Exodus was moving out west and all those different groups. So freedom obviously made black people more mobile and they moved all across the country and made more parts of the country interracial. 
which is it direct contrary to what the colonizationist movement was saying it's like let's remove them from the country so this doesn't actually happen so there's a lot of good stuff in this even though it's uh the bulk of it is kind of boring stuff but there are some really good and fascinating tidbits in this uh this uh speech to congress was this a speech or just a document uh, i don't i'm not sure but either way it was a communication to congress so i guess that's it for now um so let me know what you think of any of this you can send me an email at 100 pagescast at gmail.com the you know i i'm not giving up on this civil war series but i am going to take a little bit of a break from it i got one more episode to do uh finishing up the second volume which will focus on the battle of fredericksburg and and things like that but I, I think just because I'm having a hard time getting like a pacing um, for this. These these episodes are coming out too far apart. So I think I'm going to pick up on a project I was working on before. Um, and that's I'm going to do Sinclair Lewis. I'm going to do Main Street. And what's the other book? I think it's Babbitt. Mainstream and Babbitt. I'm going to I'm going to do those. I'm going to do a couple novels. I, I think looking back, I've been doing a lot of nonfiction kind of stuff and since I've been in a mood to read fiction lately, I think I'm going to just take a short break, maybe a one month break or, or so from the Civil War series to to do some more uh, some more deep dives into Sinclair Lewis. I've already done a series on Sinclair Lewis with uh, Aerosmith and, uh, and, 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 a, and a couple other books. But these were earlier books by Sinclair Lewis and and they're they're good. Main Street's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a lot of, got a lot of interesting gender stuff. So I'm gonna finish up this second volume of the Civil War anthology, do some Sinclair Lewis, and then hopefully get back to year three. Then maybe do some novels, and then do to year four. That's what I'm thinking. Just because it's, it's 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 I've just been too slow, and I wonder if it's the maybe I need to switch it up and and read some novels. Well, that's what I'm going to do. Hope that's okay with everyone. I'm sure it is. So anyways, that's going to be it for now. Uh, thanks as always for listening. And I'll see you next time.